0: Would you please make your way with me in your Bibles this morning to what is going to be our final section of this first chapter of the Gospel according to Mark as we look together at verses 40 through 45. It's Mark chapter 1, 40 through 45 and you can find that passage on page 981 in your pew Bibles. As we near the end of this opening chapter, if there is one sort of overwhelming takeaway for us thus far in our look together at this gospel according to Mark, I would say it is this, that Mark is desperate to show us Jesus Christ and his gospel. Opening his narrative with the beginning of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He moves at an almost frantic pace from the baptism of Jesus to his temptation in the wilderness to his encounter with the demon in the synagogue and the healing of Peter's mother-in-law in the crowds. We've noted many times now that Mark leaves off with, the, with so much of the backstories and the vivid descriptions, the detailed dialogues that we have become accustomed to expect from other gospel accounts. And the reason for that is that Mark wants to get you to the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. I think we could say very clearly that that is his mission. That is why he's writing this down. That is why Mark leaves us at times almost breathless as he races towards the cross of Jesus Christ. A couple of weeks ago, when we last looked at this together, we did note a slight change in his recalling this particular instance of the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. A a change not so much in pace, but at least on on the surface, we said, a change in focus. He moves from these public acts of Jesus as his authority as the Son of God is revealed, as he casts demons from the church, as he exercises unfathomable compassion upon those who have been so horribly disfigured by the effects of the fall. My hope is, though, that after closer consideration of that text a couple of weeks ago, that we saw that the focus really still is one and the same. The focus is the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. Mark goes to great lengths here to make certain that we do not lose sight of that mission in the face of all of these events. Jesus did not come merely to prove that he was in possession of supernatural powers. He did not come to merely flex his spiritual muscles so that the world and the devil would be forced to cower in his presence. He did not come to give us temporary relief from temporary pains and diseases. He did not come to gain the highest number of followers possible by drawing all attention to himself in the most densely populated areas on earth. Mark wants us to know that though these miracles, these compassionate, loving healings happened, though demons had been cast away because of the love and the mercy of Christ, though godly power was certainly being manifested, Jesus came for our redemption. He came to willingly lay down his precious life for us. Beloved, he came for the cross. He came to redeem us from the curse. He came to purchase our freedom to delight in the will and the law of God, not for a moment, but for eternity. And we must never lose sight of that. Beloved, it truly is our only comfort in life and in death. We go to that one all the time, don't we? It's what the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism are making clear in that first great question and answer that we are not our own. That we have been bought through the precious blood of Jesus Christ that the Father knows us that even the hairs of our heads are numbered by our Lord. that We have been redeemed from all the power of the devil. that We have been made ready and willing to love and to serve our King. And his kingdom. And it is the love of our Lord, the love of the Lord for us, that Mark is showing us with these tremendous supernatural works of power. And he takes Peter's mother in law by the hand, and she is instantly made well, made clean. A touch from the Savior, and she arises from her sickbed and begins to serve the ones gladly and gratefully whom her Lord had brought into her home. Her fever and her sickness are no longer the thing dominating her life. Her cleansing is. And beloved, we need to see it here in Mark. The parallels with the gospel abound here in this opening chapter. So I want to I ask you and make certain, have, have you taken notice of them? We are all sick with sin because of the rebellion of our first parents, Adam and Eve in the garden, as well as our own rebellion. And our sickness is such that apart from the grace of Almighty God and Jesus Christ, apart from Jesus Christ, the Son of God and His gospel, it dominates our lives, it rules us. It reigns over us. But we are cleansed and cleansed entirely in Jesus Christ. We are united to his life, his death, his resurrection by faith. Faith which he so graciously gives. And we are made well so that our gratitude for the person and the work of our Lord becomes the new driving force in our lives. We bring him glory as we bear fruit for his kingdom. We bring him glory as we love, even as we have been loved. And that redemption, that renewal, that is what Jesus Christ came to accomplish. So we must never become content with a Christianity that is less than that. Satan would love nothing more than for the church to be content to become complacent with mere shows of power. With empty husks of religion, with none of the substance of Jesus Christ that alone will fill us with a real and a steadfast hope. Even as these crowds begin to push in on Jesus for all of the wrong reasons... Seeking something more akin to magic than redemption. He has compassion. And he mercifully brings relief. I want you to understand it's certainly not wrong for these people to desire relief from their suffering. It's not wrong to desire wholeness when broken infirmity has been our lot. It's not wrong to seek physical or mental relief. No, beloved, it's wrong when we come to the realization that that is all we seek. We see the love and mercy of Jesus illustrated for us here and we are taken back. We are left to ask, what love is this? And the truth is, We have been given enough already in Mark's gospel account to stay filled with awe and wonder. As we have had manifested before us this very Jesus. This Jesus who does not seem to fit with so much of conventional evangelical Christianity. This Jesus who will not succumb to the idols of men's fancies and whims the Jesus that Mark is so desperate for you and I to see. and So Mark, as he nears the end of this first chapter, gives us yet one more instance of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and his gospel, that we need to consider this morning as we close out this frantic, Christ-exalting opening chapter. And beloved, I believe that truly it is the best one yet. So I'd like you to follow along with me as I read from God's holy and errant and infallible word, Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 45. Hear now the word of our Lord. Now, a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him, and saying to him, If you are willing, You can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone but go your way Show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places. And they came to him from every direction. This is... The word of our Lord, may he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for the opportunity that we have to come to your word this morning. We pray that you would give us eyes that see and ears that hear, so that hearing and seeing your word through the power of your spirit, we would be transformed for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in typical Mark fashion here, once again, we find very little backstory to sort of fill in the gaps of our understanding of this situation. There's really no character development here. And again, I think that it's safe for us to assume that there is, of course, a reason for that. The attention on this narrative is not upon the surrounding cast of characters or the situations that they find themselves in. The attention of the passage is 100% upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And Mark has remained absolutely consistent in that. He has something to say, and so he will not allow himself to get bogged down in the details. So what do we know? Well, we know simply this, that following the multitude of healings that had taken place in and immediately outside of Peter's home and in the surrounding wilderness, that Jesus, verse 39, was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. He was, of course, doing exactly what he told his disciples that they must be doing in verse 38. And it's amid that critical work being carried out that we are brought to really what I would say is quite a shocking encounter with Jesus Christ. This is one of those narratives that we are all probably, at least on the surface, somewhat familiar with. We know that this narrative appears in other gospel accounts. It appears in Matthew. It appears in Luke. Luke. And the problem with a surface familiarity of a narrative such as this one is that it can often lead us to just sort of fly right by and miss the purpose for its being here. I've already said this really is a shocking an encounter. And I want for us to just pause for a moment and to think through why it is that I would say that. Why is this shocking? Well, at least one of the reasons that we miss the shock here is we probably have very little real or even experiential understanding of the condition that this man is bringing into the presence of Jesus Christ. In our own day, where we live now, we have no real frame of reference for the devastation of a disease like leprosy. It is a desperately grueling affliction for anyone to suffer under. First, it's difficult because of what it does to one physically. It begins with a period of intense pain. But after that period of intense pain, the pain mechanism in the body begins to shut down. And the skin begins to be eaten away. It even falls off with no warning. It could progress even to the losing of limbs as you rot away externally. One with leprosy would eventually become horribly, horribly disfigured. And it was very contagious, which led to another form of unthinkable suffering, isolation in the suffering. The holy law of God had very detailed descriptions for how leprosy was to be dealt with in the camp of God's people. And beloved, if you've ever read it, you know that it was not gentle towards the victim. I'll not go into detail regarding those Levitical laws this morning, other than to just point out a couple of things. You can find them in the book of Leviticus, chapters 13 and 14. The one who had been determined to be suffering from this affliction by the priest would immediately become a societal outcast. They were to be removed from the rest of the people outside of the camp. They were declared to be unclean. The leper was to keep his appearance absolutely unkept. His hair was to be removed, his clothing was to remain torn, so that the appearance of the leper would always be disheveled. Never for a moment indicating the soundness of health. Never for a moment appearing to be well. And the leper was to approach no one. But when anyone would even pass at a great distance... We're told that the leper was to cover his face and shout out, unclean, unclean, so as to keep anyone from approaching him in their ignorance. The leper was removed from all comfort, placed in solitary places to suffer alone. Removed from people, removed from the temple, removed from the worship of Almighty God. Removed from sympathy. It was a death sentence. It was a disease that would eat you away slowly, your misery ever increasing until finally being mercifully overcome by death itself. It was awful. And it's but one of the reasons that I would tell you that I think this encounter with Jesus Christ and this leper is shocking. Look at what takes place. This leper actually comes into Jesus' presence. This leper actually approaches Jesus. Do you see that here? There's no covering of his face. There's no warning of his presence. He simply barges into the presence of Jesus Christ in what could only be considered a very close proximity. And he falls on his knees before him. It's shocking. These things aren't supposed to happen. And then comes the next shock. Shock. Look at what he confesses here. He is not going to Jesus wishing that perhaps the stories that he had heard were at least somewhat true. He's not pleading for Jesus to give him at least some temporary reprieve from his suffering. No, we would say that this man knows exactly what is up. He knows what this is. And he falls on his knees before the Lord Jesus Christ and he acknowledges his kingship. Not asking if Jesus would heal him. Look at what he says. He says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Have you ever considered that? This is not if you can, will you make me clean? No, frankly, I fear that that's how many of us have approached the issues of this life and our own circumstances. This is not, oh Lord, can you heal my infirmities? Not here. No, this here is a confession. There is an acknowledgement here that the one whom this man bows before, gets on his knees before, is the Lord of heaven and earth. It's the equivalent of saying that this is the one whom creation itself hears but a word and immediately obeys. This is God. And it's still more than that. This is also an acknowledgement that nothing else will do. This man is unclean and he knows it. He knows that he's not able within himself to will or to work his filthiness away. He's not running to the law for his relief. The law makes his condition clear enough. But there's no mechanism within it to restore and regain life. But this one, this Jesus... He brings life. He can bring restoration. He can bring redemption from the curse. And as this man does the unthinkable, and he brings his own foul, disease-ridden body into the presence of Jesus, he knows that there is no other means of having his life restored so he acknowledges who Jesus is he acknowledges his capability to bring all things to pass it is a solid confession is it not and of course beloved the parallels here are obvious right we are spiritual lepers in our sin we're born into this world wasting away born to experience the wages of sin, death. And we must come to the place where we understand our condition fully if we are ever to run to the arms of our Savior for our only remedy. And so I want to ask you this morning, do you see yourself here in this leper? Do you see the foulness of your own rebellion against the God who is? Do you recognize that merely covering up your own sinful condition with a pious mask is not dealing with the real issue? This man doesn't do it. In Luke's account in chapter 5, Luke tells us that this man is full of leprosy. This isn't a new case. He's not just got a little spot on his hand. We can assume that the effects have been actively disfiguring him for time, and he hides nothing. He simply falls at the feet of the creator, knowing that the creator has power over creation. And in his condition, he begs for mercy that he knows is only God's to give. Beloved, have you done that? Do you do that? Do you see yourself in the same desperate condition as this leper? You should be able to see here how settling for a mask truly is the ultimate folly considering what we must see and know that we are. The last thing we need is makeup. We need new resurrected life. We need to stop trying to make who we are in Adam look better and run and embrace who we are in Jesus Christ. That is our home. The next shock here is the response of Jesus to this confession. He doesn't run from this man. He doesn't scold this man. He certainly does not ignore this man. He is moved with compassion and he reaches out and takes hold of him as he is. You understand, Jesus reaches out and he touches a leper. There's some disagreement about the meaning of this Greek word here that in the New King James is translated as compassion. Some of the older manuscripts use a Greek word here that's actually anger. Jesus moved with anger. And I I don't want to go too much into that discussion this morning other than than to say, for me, it, it doesn't really create a problem. I believe that both words lead to the exact same understanding of this text. If it is the anger of Jesus that moves him to make this man clean, we know that it can only be a righteous anger. There's no reason to assume that Jesus is somehow upset about this man's approaching him in such a dangerous way, putting everybody at risk. If indeed he is angry, he's angry to see the devastation of the fall. The effects of the fall upon his image bearers. Remember, Jesus wept over the wages of sin. He did it standing at the tomb of Lazarus. He did it as he looked out over the city of Jerusalem. He was moved towards compassion for his people who were living ultimately what amounted to unnatural lives. They were disfigured, marred under the curse of sin and its wages. And he pities us. So Jesus does the unthinkable and he reaches out and he touches this filthy thing before him. The word used there is closer to grasping than lightly touching. He takes hold of him in love. And he commands that he be cleansed. And of course the man is made clean. He's renewed. He is restored. Do you see the glory here, beloved? This is how we approach the Savior. Aware of who and what we are in our sin. We fall before him aware of who and what he is. Hoping for grace. Grace. And this is how he responds. He embraces us. And he declares us clean for eternity. In a moment, Jesus does away with but a word, with the biggest problem that we could ever have. He cleanses us. Completely cleanses us. I want to ask you something this morning. Have you ever found yourself hesitant to come to Jesus Christ in confession, seeking mercy, only to be deluded by your flesh into thinking that he might not receive you this time? I believe this picture here shatters that notion. It's not true. Jesus makes the fallest claim. Beloved, we must drag our fears and our doubts and our anxieties into the precious light of the truth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. (coughs) Understand what I'm saying. There is no sin that repels the touch of the Savior. We bring our filth and our shame, and taking it from us, He gives to us His spotless garment of righteousness. And we live lives grateful to Him until that day that we are actually with Him in glory. That's what is required. God-given faith that produces necessary humility that leads us to repentance and running into the arms of Jesus. Is that how you see this? Is that how you see this in your own life? Or have you settled perhaps for another version? One where you're really not that bad. At least not as bad as some of these others. You're more serious than them. A version where Jesus just wants to give you a little boost so that you can make more good choices than bad choices. A Christianity that's more about keeping up appearances than it is... About acknowledging the desperateness, the wickedness of your own situation. That's not what Mark is placing before you here. In fact, I would tell you the word of God never points you to that. Our hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he bids us to come and to find ourselves cleansed in his blood. It brings us to the final shock that I think we find here. And perhaps it's one that's a little bit less obvious. I think on the surface we probably see it, right? The response of this leper. Jesus heals this man and then he warns the man. And we're told he strictly warns him to do what the law prescribes to go immediately to the priest... Offer those things for cleansing which Moses had commanded as a testimony to them and to remain entirely silent about what had just taken place. And there really are a couple of shocks here, right? First, why would Jesus demand silence from one whom he had just cleansed? Seems a rather strange request to make. Does he not want for the world to know exactly who he is? He's the fulfillment of the promise of God. He's the fulfillment of the law of God. He is the long-awaited Messiah. It seems to me like the last thing he should desire is anonymity. And yet we know that Jesus did not come to be known for healing physical afflictions. He did those, but he didn't come for those. He did not come merely to restore health to his people. He came to preach the good news. He came to be a propitiation for our sin. He came to bring life to what is clearly dead. That is his mission. He's not looking to be swamped by crowds of people coming to him for all of the wrong reasons. Looking to see some wizardry or magic not seeking anything akin to redemption. Jesus was not looking for fame. He was making his way towards the cross where he would stand in our place and receive upon himself the full punishment for our sins, the wrath of Almighty God being poured out in full upon him. He was marching towards that place where he would become death for us. That's what he's doing. That's why he's preaching the good news to all who will hear as he inches ever closer towards that final arena where he will willingly lay down his life, rise from the dead, triumphant over sin, death, and the devil. Where he will ascend to the right hand of the Father and live to intercede for us. His work goes far beyond mere temporal relief. His work goes to the full restoration of all that the curse has taken from us. That is why He came. And He will not be deterred from that mission. He will not seek His own will. He came to give us life in Him, and so He moves steadily towards the accomplishment of that mission for the entirety of His short-lived life. And the man, the leper, his response to the command of the one whom he has already acknowledged as God, what does he do? He disobeys. He takes his new restored body and he runs off and he disobeys. He runs off not to the temple, But to the masses. And he says, Look what the man Jesus did for me. And Mark tells us the result of that act Jesus was forced into deserted places. We're there again in the wilderness, he was flocked to everywhere he went. Why, why do you suppose that Mark tells us this here? Well, I think we need to see it. Let me just remind you, this opening chapter started in the wilderness with John as he was baptizing the people flocking to him in the wilderness. And of course it was there to the wilderness that Jesus himself came and was baptized. It was there that the Spirit of God descended in the form of a dove as God declared, This is my beloved Son, in Him I am well pleased. And then the wilderness again is the scene for the temptation of Jesus Christ by the devil. And now, here again, we find the wilderness coming up as a result of the disobedience of this leper. And I think there's an answer for us here in the text. Remember what Mark is so desperate to do here. To get you to the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. Not to focus simply on the life and times of Jesus. Not to regale us with fascinating tales of heroism and supernatural power that could be ours to tap into if we just do things rightly. No. This whole narrative is to get you before the, get before you the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and His Gospel. And so He does. Does He not? Jesus in the wilderness for us identifies with our sin as He stands where we ought to stand. He receives upon Himself the sign and the seal of the washing away of sin, of our being cleansed for all eternity. Jesus had no sin. In a sense, it was a a substitutionary baptism. He did not need the sign for himself. He had no need of cleansing. But there he stood in our place and identified with us and we with him. He then moves into the temptation of the devil and we see it again. He was tempted for us. He stood in our place and was tempted for us, yet without sin. Succeeding where the first Adam failed. Again, it was a sort of substitutionary temptation, if you will. And then, of course, this leper. Alone. A societal outcast. Outcast. One whose disease had made him a scourge to those around him. He was despicable in a sense. One whose suffering was seemingly endless. One who no longer had the blessing of fellowship or corporate worship. One whose disease had left him dead and alone. In the wilderness. In a desolate place. And Jesus touches him, and he's cleansed. And as one who is clearly no longer a leper, he, he is welcomed back into society and restored to the joy and a lifetime of fellowship while Jesus suffers and is forced into the wilderness back into solitary places, back to being surrounded by the effects of the fall all around him. Beloved, Jesus Christ is our substitute. There is a sense here that he traded places with us. He takes upon himself our sin and our guilt and our shame and our filth, and he pays the price for it. He ransoms us. He redeems us. He gives to us his perfect cleanness. And beloved, it is exactly what we need. We need his life. We need his death. We need his resurrection. We need his ascension. We need him as our substitutionary atonement. We needed him to be what we cannot be perfect, clean, righteous. That is who Jesus Christ is. And this is his gospel. Mark will not stop bringing him before you. Beloved, do you know this Jesus? Do you see him? Would you easily give up everything just to have him? If you see this Jesus beloved by the grace of God, then of course you must. In fact, it ought to be your highest desire to do exactly that. Will you come to this Jesus, King Jesus? Beloved, if you have, I know that worshiping him this morning is truly the only thing that we desire to do. Amen? Let's pray.